handling the call. We've been in a series, Church on Fire, where we have um, been extensively studying Acts. If you don't, if you don't know me, the type of uh, teacher I am, I, I say I'm a teacher, not a preacher, because I don't necessarily like to um, focus on trying to encourage people, even though that's something I do. My focus in teaching is to take very difficult concepts and break it down in a way that you can apply. I don't skip verses. I go through every single one because I believe if we dig enough, we can find truth behind it. I believe that a message should have encouraging words, and I believe it should have um, some offensive things in it because it, the things that offend us often tries to get us to move us. Not that I try to offend, but I try to bring truth because truth often offends what our our culture is amen and I believe in the in America today especially everything about America is being divided when it comes to culture we we are the the United States of divide everything's division there's division in culture there's division in politics the most division it seems is in religion and in the church the most, the most division in America is about you know I think there's 300 plus denominations where the church can't agree on one thing and I think a lot of times the reason we can't agree on anything is because we try to put our opinion on things instead of just reading the truth for what it is and figuring out how we can get our culture in line with the heavenly culture. That God says, I have a kingdom, I have a kingdom culture that I started this world with and in the fall that was lost and man created their own reasonings, their own culture and if you would just get in line with my truth, I would bring that culture of heaven heaven back down because the way I establish my heavenly culture is through the thing that I put in authority over this earth and the thing that I put in authority over the, this earth was man and we tend to as Christians and believers we have this um, blanketed truth of God is in control but the fact of the matter is God is only in control when the people in, a, in authority over this earth rule it under his control God is in control when we rule under his authority. He, but he does not have control if his people will not subdue the, the, the things that are against his culture. That is not how God works. If that was how God works, God would have no need to sacrifice his son and send his word in the form of a man. The word became flesh because it needed to die and be sacrificed so that the penalty of sin would be paid so that man could get the authority back to rule this earth under the governing authority of the Father. That is why we are deemed. We have the right to rule even though we had no right because of our sin. So he redeemed us to rule. So... This message today of handling the call is about the fact that each and every one of you, despite what you may think, you have a call on your life. And in this study of Acts, we've been going through verse by verse, studying the entire chapter. Paul is up to this place where he is reasoning in the synagogues. I preached a message last week called Ready to Reason. We saw that the Apostle Paul was going to the synagogues every week, talking to the Jewish people, reasoning with them. And the word reasoning, if you missed the message last week, it was, it was a word that meant dialogue. He was dialoguing, questioning and answering, talking with the Jewish people in these synagogues about why they have missed it. They are sitting, Jewish people are sitting in the synagogues praying for a Messiah, and Paul's like, guys, that Messiah that you've been praying for, he's already come. Have any of you ever heard of the term Messianic Jew? 
What a Messianic Jew is, it's a Jewish person who believes in the Messiah. And it really is a beautiful culture. I think sometimes people in America, if I may be so bold to say this, we tend to mix our culture in with the way God really wanted things to be. If you look at a typical Christian, we have so much paganism intertwined in our culture. And if you look at a Messianic Jew, it is so pure in what they do. And I'm going to be so bold to say that. I know that's a little like gut check, but it's, it's, it's the way it is. It's, 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 it's the word of God. There are so many things that we have intertwined, and I'm not trying to say uh, that the, to be disrespectful to cultures, but there is one culture, and there are certain things that can be received, but there are certain things that we need to start rejecting. And Paul is going into these synagogues and saying, you know what, I love this about you, I love this about you, but you've missed it there. And this is wrong, and this is where I'm going. So he's having this dialogue. And I want to, again, set this picture up that Paul is a Roman practicing Jewish customs, yet believing in a Messiah that the Jews believed didn't come. So he's not being or giving allegiance to any culture. He, he is the most mixed cultural guy in the idea that he is representing a culture that the world has lost, that the world has not seen. And I believe, and we talked about it in the worship gathering uh, this morning when we prayed for the service, I believe that the thing that we have to focus on the most, and it may be why we are thin today in moving forward and coming back after Corona, if we are going to be the church that God has called us to be, we have got to start looking different than the culture. We have got to start looking like a heavenly culture that the world has not seen. Why has the church tried to be culturally relevant to a culture that we're called to change? God has not said, be relevant to the thing that I don't like. We've missed it. God has said, I want you to look uncommon. I want you to look different. I want you to look to say things different, to rule differently, to raise your kids differently, to love differently, to be humble in a different way. I want you to bring a different culture than what anyone else has seen so that when they see you react and they see you live, people will say, why? And you can give them a chance to see the light that has shined. That's what Paul is doing. So today, we're picking up in Acts chapter 18, and we're seeing the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of this third one. So picking up in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, it says this. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There, he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy with Claudius Caesar, deported all Jews, who had deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. So let me give you some context of what's going on. Corinth was a city known for a lot of sin. A lot of sin. Especially two things. It was known for explicit sexual sin, and it was known for its self-indulgence. Uh, anything to, to, to make oneself feel better despite any sort of religious belief that was known for that city. In fact, the most popular uh, god worshipped in Corinth was the goddess Aphrodite who was the goddess of fertility and sexuality. Corinth was a, 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 had a bad reputation. In fact, an ancient writer once described Corinth as a town, uh, and, and I quote, where none but the tough could survive. 
you know, Corinth was not exactly the place where you want to end up and residing if you were weak. It was a very sinful, corrupt town. But Corinth was also a significant city because it was a crossroads for all trade and all travel in the Roman Empire. So Paul in his travel says, you know what? If I'm called to establish a church, God has called me to establish a church where everyone in the Roman Empire is going to pass through because I'm going to have some influence on, the church is going to have some influence on people because all the people are going to be passed through it, passing through Corinth. It is a place where everyone passes through. It's important. It is where the, the trade is. It's where, the, where, where everyone's coming through. And I've got to get a strong church there. Well, at this time, Jews were coming into Corinth because all of the Jewish people were deported from Rome. Would you like to know why they were deported? Riots. How timely is this message? They were deported for riots. What were they rioting? Christianity has started to infiltrate their synagogues. People like Paul were coming in and saying, hey, Messiah's come. Get off your knees. Pray for something different. That's one thing I love about the Jewish culture. They are consistent with their prayer. They knew how to pray. Unfortunately, a lot of Jewish people are still praying for something that has already been answered. And I think a lot of times Christians are the same way. God deliver me. And God's like, I did. Now walk it out. Walk out the breakthrough. Stop praying for a breakthrough. Walk out the freedom. Walk out the deliverance. God, deliver me. God, get me out of this. God's like, I already have. If you would walk in the way, walk in the truth, walk in the life, you would walk out what I have delivered you from. But we make up this whole God thing to be God is going to do it for me. God is going to get me out of this. And God's like, no, no, no. I have redeemed you to give you the authority to walk out of your mess into the true identity that you are called to be. You are no longer identified by what you were or what you did. So walk out of it yourself and embrace an identity that he bought for you by sacrificing his son. Don't let what God did be a bad investment. This is already better than last night. <laughs> so the Jews were deported from Rome because they were starting to infiltrate the synagogues. Now, again, two types of Jews. Jews that didn't believe, Jews that did. But Rome just saw one, Jewish culture. So they said, let's get all of it out. So the Jewish people were deported from Rome, and they started showing up in Corinth. So Paul shows up to build a church in a significant town known for sin, and people were showing up associated with Jews who were deported for rioting. Think about that. Paul shows up in a city known for sin, full of people who didn't like what he represented, and full of people who were known for rioting. And you think you got problems. Can you imagine that call? 
the call on his life to say, I've got to go to a city that is the toughest, most sinful city. Now, remember Paul. Paul used to be a murderer of Christians. He's, he has walked out of that identity, and he is going back into the culture he came from, into the worst town on top of that. You know, you ever heard of relapse? This would be the time that Paul would relapse. You know what I'm saying? Like, Paul's going back into the worst city in the worst culture with Jewish people who have almost killed him with stoning, and now they're rioting and getting kicked out of towns. This is the worst conditions to be in. And the people sent to Paul were two people known for a trade, tent makers. And the scriptures tell us they were tent makers just like Paul. And some translations, you can interchange the word tent makers and leather workers. See, Paul had people supporting his ministry, but Paul also had a job supporting his own way for two reasons. One, at the time in Jewish culture, it was very customary that the rabbis had to provide their own income because they didn't want any of the money going from the synagogue into the rabbi's pocket. Also, Paul said, I do not want people to think I'm in this for money just to get people to come to Jesus so I can pocket income. That is one reason why this church, a lot of churches, the staff gets paid 60 to 70% of the budget at Relentless. We have a core value that we will not go above 30% of the entire staff for this church. That 70% of the budget will go to ministry specifically. Paul wanted to make sure that this was not happening. So he said, I'm going to have another job. I'm going to make tents. I'm going to have another source of income to make sure that people know that I'm not in this for the money. And the one thing that I want to address today in the idea of handling the call is that these people, Aquila and Priscilla, were believers and tent makers. And this is what I want to address to you, that they had something in addition to being a tent maker. Their full-time job was they were tent makers. But look how Paul refers to them in Romans 16. Verses 3 through 4. Usually we have scriptures on the screen, but the person that was going to be up there today uh, could not be here. I apologize for that. But let me read this to you. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, the people that were just mentioned, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. You see what he just said there? These two tent makers who were Jews that believed in Christ were my co-workers in the ministry of of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. They were co-workers in the ministry, and they had a full-time job. And I want to say this today in the idea of handling your call. A full-time job does not excuse you from a call to ministry. And the church has done a poor job of separating the two. And it is the biggest, it, I, I feel the tension already. And the biggest excuse we use as believers, I don't have time for ministry because I have a full schedule. I've got a full-time job. I've got a family. I've got kids. I've got this. I've got that. These people were tent makers in a town full of rioters. They were, they were deported from Rome, and while they were making tents and being evicted, they were co-workers in ministry. And I think the reason why we are so separated in the idea of ministry and, and full-time job is because we have defined ministry wrong. 
Because when we think of ministry, the first thing we think of is, what do I do for the organization that is called church? We think youth ministry, we think kids ministry, we think uh, preacher, we think evangelism, we think outreach. But ministry is not limited to something you do in the walls of what we call the organization of a church. Um, in fact, a ministry defined as simply this. It's an act of service through which you accomplish something. That's why you have terms like a ministry of defense. A ministry is an act of service through which you accomplish something. You, have, you, you call it a kid's ministry because you're trying to accomplish raising up kids to walk in the way of Jesus. You call it a, a, a preaching ministry or a teaching ministry because you want to accomplish teaching truth to people to let them walk in Jesus. But there is also the ministry of Gulfstream. What is the ministry? Planes. You're accomplishing the purpose of selling planes and making money. There is the ministry of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of, of waiting tables. What's the purpose? Making people happy, getting tips. It, 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 it is serving a purpose. These people are co-workers with Paul in a ministry. What was the ministry of Paul? Establishing a church in Corinth. And these tent makers came and said, we have full-time jobs, but it does not excuse us from using our position in full-time jobs to be co-workers with you and making sure that we can shine the light of God for all these people to see in Corinth. Being a co-worker in ministry does not mean you have to sacrifice every night of the week by coming to church when you're tired because you've got to go home. It means you become a co-worker with Relentless. You become a co-worker with the church by making sure that every conversation you have in your workday, every conversation you have with your significant other, every conversation you have with your kids, the way you respond in arguments is a representative of Christ Jesus and a chance to give him glory. And because you look so different, the world says, what is it that is different about you? And when you say, our Heavenly Father, they say, teach me, and you say, I'll show you how I learned. That is being a co-worker in the ministry of Christ Jesus. The word Christ means the anointing of. When you were redeemed, you were anointed to walk in the call that he had purpose for you before you were even born. And no matter how many mistakes you made and, how, and no matter how much you were in a revolving pattern of the same mistake, he says, if you will walk to me in repentance, stop looking back at what you did and look forward into this idea that there is a call on your life and it's time to start walking. So how will you handle it? How will you handle that call? There was a parable that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 22. I'm not going to read the whole scripture. I'm going to read the last few verses, but I want to explain the parable to you. Basically, what happens is a king prepares a feast. He gets the biggest beast, and he prepares the table, and it's a crazy feast, and he invites all the, 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 the worthy people. And when he sends out the invite to all the worthy people, guess who shows up? No one. So the king is disappointed. 
said, man, I put all this time into preparing a table and getting the decorations and cooking the food and, and all these things, and no one shows up. So he's mad. So then he says, well, let me invite them again. And this time I'm going to make sure they know, like, hey, I, I did all this, and let me, let, let me get you to come again. And he sends the second invite, and guess who came? No one. No one came. So the king's mad. So he says, well, I prepared the feast. I put in the time. I sacrificed everything I had to make sure that it was an incredible feast. So he looks at his servants and says, I want you to go out in the streets, and I want you to invite every unworthy person on every corner of the street to come in and sit at my table. That's exactly a picture of what Jesus did. Because he came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Okay? He says, I came for Israel. But then after he redeemed us, he says, Jew or Gentile, we are all Israel. We are the church. There is no separation. He says, I invited the people who were worthy. And because of what I've done, now you are all worthy to accept the invitation to the table. I have called you. Does that make sense? I have called you to come sit. So when he gets all these people that were, you ever felt unworthy? You ever felt unworthy of a call? Well, Kyle, you don't know what my life's been like. I really don't, if I can just say it boldly, I don't really give a crap what your life was like. Did he just say crap? Yeah, I'm okay with that. I don't really care what your life was like or what you did. That does not change the fact that you are, not were, are called. He says, I've called you to sit at my, so but look what happens when he calls all these unworthy people to sit at the table. Verse 11, Matthew 22. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Because back then when you came to eat at a table at a certain kind of feast, especially with the king, you better come dressed properly. You know, I get invited um, to go to Dine South every year. Y'all, you ever been to Dine South? Yeah, y'all ain't special like me. Um, I'm just kidding. Dine South is uh, it, it's a it's a big thing with vendors. Uh, I know the owner of y'all ever heard of South Magazine? Yeah, he owns South Magazine. He puts on this thing called Dine South, and he invites me to come. Well, it, it's a pretty big thing, and it's expensive, but it gives me a free ticket because you know I'm Kyle. And um, <laughs> you don't go to Dine South dressed like this. I have, to, I have to put on some, some nicer clothes. And when, and when I say I put on nicer clothes, I don't own those clothes. So I got to go buy a set to wear to Down South. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like I, I, don't, you know, I don't own many ties or nice shirts. So I got to go buy one because I know once I wear it, it's going to become retired. Because I'm either going to outgrow it or, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so you, you don't go to that dressed down. And this is exactly how it is at the king's table. You don't come to the king's table casual you dress up so the king comes in to greet all his guests expecting that they're dressed a certain way and he looks at this guy and he's not wearing the proper clothes verse 12 friend he asked how is it that how is it that you are here without wedding clothes but the man had no reply then the king said to his aides now this is savage 
bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I can't tell you how many times that would happen to me if I showed up in the wrong clothes. You know what the next verse is that every Christian quotes? For many are called, but few are chosen. Why is it that many are called, but few are chosen? Everyone's called to the table, but you're chosen to stay there if you stop taking it casual. If you get up and get dressed and stop being so dismissive with the fact that you have a call to feast with the king. And we use things like, well, you don't understand. I work all day. I've got my job. I've got my family. I've got all this. Paul was preaching in synagogues. He almost got stoned to death. He's dealing with riots. He's being in jail. He's being, in threat. He's being threatened. He's dealing with all the stuff. And guess what? The apostle Paul, who, who we think is just a minister, he also has a full-time job of tent making. He did all that with a job. And if that's not enough, in Acts 18, the next two verses, four and five, it says each Sabbath, Paul, uh, each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all of his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Look at how Paul handles the call. In the midst of all this pushback, all this adversity, all the bad things your people were saying, in the worst town where all the Jews were deported, all the riots, all the stoning, all the jails, uh, while Paul's making tents, he's at the synagogue, not when he feels like it, not when he decides to wake up. He's at that synagogue. It says each and every Sabbath. How do you handle the call? With consistency. Or do you get dressed casually and say, I'll answer the call of Jesus when I have, it, when I have the time, when I feel like it, when it suits my purpose? Maybe we need to understand that it's not about when it suits your purpose. It's we have got to submit our lives under him to match and suit his purpose. It's called dying to oneself. Trust me, God knows that we need time to rest. But have you led a life and handled the call with consistency to even merit rest? I hope this is speaking. Matthew 5, 16 says it this way. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Do you take each and every moment as casual or do you get dressed? How do you handle disappointing kids? Casual by saying what you want to say and doing what you want to do or do you get dressed and handling it in the way that the father handled your sins? You know how the father handled your sins? I'm going to kill my son so that you get freedom. How, how, how do you talk to people that backstab you? You know what Jesus did? Oh, you, you, you want to put the crown of thorns in my head? That's fine. You want to mock me? That's okay. I'm still going to walk to that cross. You want to slander me? That, that's fine. I, st I still love you. But we're so responsive. You know, we're, we're in this time of all this racism right now as if that's a new thing. Racism has always been, and let me just give you a spoiler alert. If you think we're going to end racism 
It's not going to. Can I prove it to you? The scripture says, they, the, the disciples asked Jesus, can you tell us when the end times are coming? And he says, I'll give you a sign. Nation will rise against nation. You know what the word nation is? It's the word ethnos. Guess what it means? Ethnicity. So when we take communion today, you know why I praise God that the conquering king is coming back? Because when the king is coming back, racial divide will be unified. That's when it will come back. That doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to racism. It means we get dressed and love the heck out of people. Not just the people who are affected, but also the racists. Yeah, we don't like to talk about that one. Why do we love them? Because we need to shine light into their ignorance. And they will not walk out of darkness. What is light and darkness? Light is knowledge, darkness is ignorance. That's the original Greek context. How do they walk out of ignorance? Give them a reason to. Don't validate their hate by pouring hate. Or making them feel belittled because they're walking in an ignorant posture. So Paul is being consistent in his call, accepting the call. And in verse 6 it says, but when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood's upon your own heads. I'm innocent from now and I'll go preach to the Gentiles. And then he left and went to the home of, of, uh, of Titius Justice, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. Paul was testifying to the Jews about Jesus. And what happens to us is when we get insulted, when people oppose us, we get offended and we react. Paul did not get offended or react. He simply said, you don't receive me. The blood's on your hands. I'm going to shake the dust off my clothes. And I'm just going to walk the other way. And I'm going to go to this house. Why didn't he get offended? Why didn't he throw something in their face? Because he knew what they were insulting and offended at was not him. It's what he represented. What did he represent? The truth that he was speaking. And if you would get more wrapped up in living and speaking truth than your own opinion, then you would not be offended because what they're offended at is something that you represent, not you. You know what Matthew 7, 6 says? It says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls before swine. If I threw some real pearls out, out here today, y'all get them. Why? Because you know the what? The value of a pearl. Pigs don't know the value of pearls, so it says they will trample on them. But here's the part that no one wants to read in that verse, because we think that's where the verse ends. Every preacher quotes that verse. Don't throw your pearl before swine. Same verse. Don't throw your pearl before swine. They will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. What if the reason you're experiencing attack because you're putting holy things into things that aren't ready to receive what's holy? You spend more time arguing truth when they're not ready to receive that pearl. When you should be taking all of your time to just love what they do not know. Love them where they're at. Serve them. Don't argue theology with someone who doesn't believe in God. 
Amen? Amen. And Paul, look what he does. He says, you know what? I'm not going to argue with y'all. I've given truth. So I'm just going to turn around and I'm going to go to this house of this Gentile that y'all think will never be redeemed. And when he goes to the Gentile's house who believed in Jesus, did you did catch what that scripture said? It says, the leader of this Jewish synagogue left and believed and was baptized. Sometimes the biggest thing you can preach is what you shake off and leave behind and won't put up with. Because you're consumed with your call rather than your agenda. And something very cool about what just happened in that, if you read through the scriptures, all the people that believe when Paul preached, he very seldomly baptized people. His, 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 his disciples and his Timothys, they baptized people. But Paul personally baptized the synagogue leader. In leaving and saying, I don't have time, I've given you truth, the leader of that synagogue who rejected him came to know Christ because he said he is so bold to leave, and he did it with class and merit and love. And it changed his life. Why? Because he said, I want to live like that dude. Because the culture I see in Paul ain't Roman and ain't Jewish. It's this Messiah that we keep praying for that apparently has already come. Is this okay? 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you are wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Make no mistake, you are called. And even more proof that God has a call in you that many can't see. Check this out in the next part of Acts 18. Is this okay? Can I keep going? Is this okay? Verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No one will attack you. No one will harm you. For many people in the city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. God said, there are still people here that are mine. But no one can see it and they've given up on them. And I think we give up on people way too much because we can't see it. And what we do is sometimes we don't give up, but we keep trying to pry that door open. God says, no, 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 I'm with you. That's all you need to know. Speak boldly. Don't be silent. Don't be afraid. But what we'll try to do sometimes is we give up too quick, and we leave something too soon. So what does Paul do? He stays a year and a half. Or remember what happened at the synagogue. Paul didn't speak truth and then kept going, prying the door open, trying to get them to see. He spoke truth and he left and the door opened again, not because Paul went back to the synagogue, but because the leader of the synagogue came to him. The Bible says the word does not go out null and void. Is that enough for you or are you too obsessed with seeing the fruit of what you just sowed? Because seeds need time to grow. So stop trying to pry open something that God says, it ain't going to happen. Shake the dust off and walk away. Be so bold to speak truth. Know the time. 
When we get up, we should get dressed and prepare for a feast every day, celebrating a harvest every day, whether you see it or not. And there will be people and things that try to stop you. But God says, I'm with you, and is that enough for you? You know, I, I, I was talking about this last night. I was thinking about all the effort we put in this building. And we've put a lot of money into it, and we've sowed resources into it, getting ready. I believe God has given us this for a reason. But let's just say that next month, because of all the crazy stuff going on in America, let's just say that for some reason the government decides that churches are not allowed to be indoors anymore, that they are not allowed to meet. Well, that will never happen. It's going to happen one day. It's, it's going to. I hope not next month, but let's just say it did. Is God saying, Kyle, I'm with you, enough for me to handle the call to keep pastoring this church without facilities? Is it enough for you to stay? Is it enough for you to push through? Or have Christians become so needy, uncomfortable? The people who changed the world had to worship by candlelight. There, there, there are people in, in China right now in the underground church that there's literally hundreds of people in a room probably this size huddled up with candlelight, sweating, seeking God with no AC or anything because if they were found out, they would be thrown in jail. And us, let's not go to church because we might get sick. But God is our healer. And I said it last night, and I will say it again. If they tell us we have to quarantine and shut down again, we're not shutting these doors again. I'm not doing it. And if they want to shackle me up, y'all can go ahead and get ready to bust me out of prison like Paul and Silas singing until midnight, all right? I'm, I'm serious. I'm not doing it. And y'all know me. I fall asleep at 9, so midnight, make sure y'all bust the wall hard because... <laughs> So Paul was pressing forward. I'm wrapping up, I promise. In verse 12 it says, But when Gallio became governor of Achaia, some Jews rose up together against Paul. Remember, Paul was staying here a year and a half. And brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, Jews. If this were a case involving some wrongdoings or a serious crime, I'd, I'd have reason to accept your case. But since it's merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out in the courtroom. The crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. But Gallio paid no attention. Paul stayed for a year and a half. Now, I, I, I hate the fact that Gallio turned his head and this man got beaten. But let me give you the context of why he turned his head. The government was tired of the rioting of the Jewish people, and they didn't care. And you know what's crazy? Paul had favor for once in the government. Why? Because Paul was called to bring change to the people that the government no longer cared for. How do you handle a call to people that people have thrown away? Because if we can just get real, 
the church is really good at bringing in people who are put together. But how do you handle calls with people who aren't? I mean, how do you handle a call with people who just don't look like church? Maybe that's why the church is no longer doing anything. Because all the people who look like church have no power. And the people who don't look like church, they are so seeking something that if we were to get them under the right alignment, power would just be released. But we throw them away because we don't want to handle that call. We, 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 we don't want the the arguments and the pushback and we don't want to handle this and handle that or you know what you know what pastors don't want that they don't want other churches to say i can't believe you put that person in leadership well god loves them and god has a call on them and i'm willing to go with them and see them come what's our vision come alive in christ even if they mess up 400 times because you know what i know a man named jesus who spent three years with a guy who betrayed him and he didn't say, I'm not going to pour my time to someone because he's going to betray me. He says, I know he's going to betray me, and I'm still going to pour my time into him. What a, how do you handle a call to those people? You know what Paul did? He stayed. <laughs> so in verse 18, it says, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that. And then he said goodbye to his brothers and sisters and went to nearby Centria. Then he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. And then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. Paul stayed for a year and a half, handling a call to ministry. And when he was done, it says he shaved his head. Why did he shave his head? We sing a song sometimes here, Ever Relentless. It's, it's called, um, uh, it's, it, the, the, the chorus goes, deep inside there's a Nazarite cry. There was a, there was a Nazarite vow in, in Jewish custom where when you came to a place with an assignment, you let your hair grow until your assignment was done. And when the assignment was done, you'd shave your head. So Paul, when he came in this assignment, he did not touch his hair for the entire time he was there until he was done. Why? He wanted them to know all you Jewish people who are against me, I'm still going to honor you. But I'm going to let you know this. I'm going to honor you to let you know I'm here for you. But this does not redeem me or make me clean. And this does not define me. I'm still going to give you the truth that the Messiah that you're hoping for is the one who identifies me. And I think in handling our call, we don't. We are called to change culture. But in changing it, we've got to honor it. Now, I don't mean honor culture that is necessarily against God. I'm talking about we've got to stop demeaning people's culture. Just because it doesn't seem normal to us doesn't mean we criticize it. And I, I, I'm not talking about a culture of believing in different gods or sin. I'm not talking about that. We need to start drawing a hard line with sin. Sin, sin. But we, we have to start honoring culture and letting them know, I'm going to honor you because I'm trying to pull you out of it and show you a better way. 
Paul said, I'm going to stick here a year. I'm going to learn your ways. I'm going to be here with you. And I'm going to honor you by saying, you want, you want me to show you my commitment? Yeah, I'll shave my head. I mean, think about church practices, right? Um, the culture of church is suits and pews. Let's take this. This is pretty much church culture these days. There is nothing new about chairs and screens and, and instruments. There's nothing new about that. Like, are we willing to get out of this idea of what this is even for? Like, we honor the culture of we're creating a space for you, but it's not to get people in here to make people feel comfortable on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night. We're honoring the culture of you want a place to come, but we're not going to dumb down the message. We're not going to water it down. And we are going to have one goal, not to tell you every week that Jesus saves you. I think that's the worst mistake the church has made. Every Sunday is an evangelism service. And half the people in church always say the same thing. I get it. Jesus died for me. What else? Let's start talking about it. We'll start talking about the culture of heaven. That's what Paul did. And then when he left, it says, starting in verse 19, I'm wrapping up, I promise. I'm only 50 seconds over. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus where Paul left the others behind. And while he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. Why did he decline? He says, as he left, he said, I'll come back later, God willing. But then he set sail for Ephesus. The next stop was at the port of Caesarea. And from there, he went up, visited the church at Jerusalem, then went back to Antioch. And after spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening the believers. There's a time for evangelism. There's a time for planting churches. But Paul also knew there was also a time for discipling, and encouraging and building up what I've already established. And we have got to remember handling our call to things. Don't get so caught up in your future that you forget to handle the crops that you've already planted. Because when you get so caught up in tomorrow, you don't water the plant that's today, and the stuff that you're in right now starts to die, and then you wonder why stuff's failing, you're depressed, you have anxiety, because you spend so much time on waiting for tomorrow that you don't water your today, that you don't give life and encouragement in what you're in right now. I think we, we spend so much time on what's next that we don't understand that what's next does not dismiss what's now. Handle your what's now and have vision for what's next. Paul said, yeah, I've got to evangelize. I've got to handle my call. But in handling my call for more, I've got to handle my call in what I've already done. And, you know, we were going to buy more chairs and all that for this bigger space because, you know, there's actually a lot more room in here that looks like we have these very spaced out. This will seat up to about 150 chairs. Right now, there's, there's almost 80 chairs in here. It'll be tight, but it could happen. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, we don't need to increase chairs right now. We need to build people. We all need one thing. We have got to go deeper. You're all called for something. 
Why do we need more people when you don't know how to pray, when you don't know how to minister, when you don't know how to, I mean, why, why do I have three or four people that know how to pray for people at an altar when all of you are called to walk in the authority of Jesus Christ? Until we get there, we don't deserve anyone more. Can I be so bold to say that? We all have got to start saying, I'm going to handle the call in my life. I am. That's all Jesus needed. I am. That's all God needed to tell Moses. I am. Why isn't that enough for you? I am. I am worthy of the call. I am, I am, I am worthy. Let me start doing this. And in the last part of the text, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, this is talking about what I just talked about going deeper. He was an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well. He arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord. He taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit, with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. He knew what to say, but he only knew what John did. He didn't know Jesus, the, the, the deep things of Jesus. And you know what the deep things about Jesus were? It's basically saying this. He knew about the salvation of the Messiah, but he didn't know about the kingdom message that the Messiah brought. You ever notice that in scriptures? Jesus talked about salvation to everyone, or, or, but when he talked about kingdom, he spoke in nursery rhymes called parables, and he only explained them to disciples. So this is, this is one of those eloquent speakers, and he's saying all the right stuff, but he doesn't know the deep things. So when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking to welcome him home. When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate, using the scriptures, and he explained to them that Jesus was Messiah. That's the kind of house we need to be. People get Jesus and can explain the fact that he saved us. But we need to take them aside and say, let's go deeper. Let me show you how to handle your call because you do have one. And let me sharpen you a little bit. Let, let, let me strengthen you in some places where you're not strong. Let me show you how to stick to it. Let me show you how to handle it when people will come against you we need to become a house that is passionate to partner with people send them and develop them and I close with this in Philippians 2 verses 1 through 2 is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ any comfort from his love any fellowship together in the spirit are your hearts tender and compassionate then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Let's work together and handle this call to be the church that this world needs. Amen? Let's stand.